because my God says to be good to you. I think the first thing that we should be thinking, because we're precisely because we're in that situation, which we've all got variable reels in a reality that is arguable and that we all rely on each other, then the first point of call is, okay, so what am I, what ethical obligations do I have in the first instance? Hey, welcome everyone. So today it's Alex Phoebe on the podcast. This would be the first podcast we did, which is a video episode and in the lockdown. So hopefully you enjoy that. Alex is a writer and some of you might already know him from his work and the books he have written, Lucia and Playthings. I've put the link down below the episode. Um, one of his new book is More Do which is coming in August 2020. Now, if you are interested in subjective experience, psychology, or our relationship with reality, these are the perfect books to explore. Can't wait to have a conversation with him. Let's just welcome Alex Phoebe. So it's uh, if anyone want to check out, it's on... Uh, uh, Spotify. So if you put Scholars in Spotlight, you'll find it. And okay. otherwise, if you just put Scholars in Spotlight Greenwich on Google, there right. are a few different blogs and places where you can find find them. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll certainly have a look. Perfect. So the first time I think I had conversation with you was in 2018, June. It was, uh, I think it was 13th of June. Uh, okay. Good memory. It's just all, uh, but the, the reason why I remember it is because it's book festival, so it's nearly at the similar. Ah, of course, okay. Dates, yeah, and we talked about Hyperion, Dan Simmons. Right. Uh, <laughs> it's a good it, book. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. I would definitely yeah. want to explore that book some some other time, but yeah, sure. uh, but yeah, I I I always wanted to have conversation with you after that because it was this like a. Uh, conversation while an event big event was going on so we can't mm. we couldn't talk more than five minutes so uh, sure. finally this is the best excuse to talk to you <laughs> to, to book, book <laughs> your good. time and uh, do the podcast okay let's maybe start with your latest book probably that might be an interesting i think it's a bit of a different book than the few ones you have done before if i'm correct yeah i mean well i don't know to be honest um it's certainly generically different. It's in a, in a different genre, so that, that's that's true. Uh, and from a from a, an outsider's point of view, then definitely it it doesn't look the same as the the last two that have been published, because they were both um, obvious. They took a, a kind of real historical figure um, who has been written about academically and uh, in all sorts of different ways, and dealt with that as the main protagonist. Um, so this isn't. This is a, a fantasy novel. Uh, so it deals with people who don't exist in places that don't exist, doing things that no one's ever done, uh, that no one's written about and no one knows anything about. <laughs> so certainly it does look as if it's completely different. But from my point of view, it's it's no different from the kind of material that I usually write. The themes are the same. The attention that I pay to the writing is the same. My process is the same. Um, and it's one of those things that people don't always remember when they're thinking about writers is that the things that writers do uh, and the things that readers read aren't the same thing. Um, quite often, the material that you eventually see un in the bookshop under a person's name 
uh, while representative of the stuff they do isn't by any means mo anything more than a sample. So this book feels like as much an Alex Phoebe novel uh, as any of the other three, uh, despite the fact that it would be the first one that anyone would have read of mine that is in genre, because all of my stuff so far has been sold to uh, publishers of literary fiction. Um, and now they're branching out. Gally Beggar are, are wanting to, um, I guess, take a risk on doing fantasy, um, but mostly because they know they've already read my stuff and they know that it's well, it's not in the same genre, at least the kind of stuff that I'm known for writing. So it's not that unusual. It's uh, so uh, it's I, when you were mentioning it, I realized that it's you're right. Actually, some of the fantasy novels would make you know you, you create characters and voices and you associate details some mm. of the other works you have also done has to do with a lot of voices and a lot of uh, internal subjective worlds which might yeah. feels very much somehow similar it's, it's actually accurate yeah well i mean i think that there is one of the things that um has always been of interest to me is the idea of, of what reality is uh, particularly reality as it's represented um, in literature. Excuse me a step. Um, and my feeling is that regardless of, of your subject matter, regardless of the kind of uh, superficial content, um, all forms of literary practice, all writing novels, are um, fantasies of one type or another, even if they represent themselves as reals. So with something like Playthings, it's relatively obvious because it's about a schizophrenic judge uh, that that person's reality is is not the same reality as one that you could say was um, scientifically and objectively and empirically provable. Um, and with Lucia Joyce, who also suffered mental health problems and is essentially silenced, any writing on her can't really be real either. So when you come to publish then a piece of fantasy writing, um, and people say, ah, well, this is a change because it's, it's fantastic. Then it's facing the fact that all writing is fantastic. They're just fantasies about different things. So if, um, if you can consider literary fiction to be a fantasy about the real, uh, not all literary fiction, but some literary fiction, uh, particularly English literary fiction could be seen as a fantasy about the real, then fantasy is, is a fantasy about the unreal. Um, and so to a certain extent are people who have uh, mental illnesses. So those things, fantasies about the unreal, even though they are set in the real. So it's much more complicated than thinking, oh, well, now you've gone from realism into fantasy. The same techniques apply, the same uh, um, interest applies. I think the difference with, with this new book is that um, it's much less focused on, as you were pointing out, one, one voice and one experience, and much more focused on um, a world. So it's like broadening the fantasy away from interiority and, and kind of subjectivity into something a bit broader. Yeah, uh, one research I was reading about uh, fiction, people who either write fiction or read more fiction, uh, pretty uh, well done research, which is about the people who read fiction as character or they are more emotionally robust because they mm. are they are playing the real world scenario in their head and understanding yeah, sure. and how they can, you know, somehow hold various I different points. I think I saw that view. too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think there is, um, I can never remember who does, who made various quotes 
or, or the exact quote, <laughs> terrible memory, but there's something along the lines of uh, someone who doesn't read lives one life and someone who does read lives a hundred lives. And I think that that is, is, is definitely the case. And I think there's a case to be made for writing of any kind, but fictional writing um, in particular for developing empathy and, and sympathy to a certain extent and, and kind of giving people the opportunity to um, virtualize perhaps trauma and events uh, that might happen to them so that when they come to um, deal with them in their real lives that they are not pre-prepared but um, as you put more robust uh, in terms of the kind of level and range of things that they can deal with because they've seen those things happen uh, in fictional worlds. I love it that you mentioned about exploring reality because uh, I got this word from this I think he uh, yeah he's a writer uh, Eric Davis um, he he uh, he write a lot about weird and uh, mm. uh, cyber uncanny experiences. Seventies uh, sure. like how to classify? Well, I can't classify it. It's just he write a, a, about a lot of things, cyborgs mm. and transcendence experiences. But he sure. classify. Uh, these things as a real and reality so real is something which is you know let's say just just a, a placeholder word um, mm. where something is very objective outside and real uh, reality is our relationship to that real yeah sure and it, yeah well i think i mean I'm, it's particularly for the writer the the blending between those two things is is pretty much um complete so and there's a, a tendency, I think, on the part of, of critics and readers to imagine that novels uh, and, and, say, factual writing differ in some way, uh, in that they, they're allowed to speak about different things. And I think that it's a mistake to imagine that you have access to that real. Um, I think you have access to your reality in that sense. Um, regardless of how you pitch your book, regardless of whether you say this is a factual book or a fictional book or a fictional book that deals with facts or a factual book that deals with fiction, whatever it might be, um, you're always kind of trapped in this reality situation. And the real is essentially not accessible to you. Um, not not through, through words, certainly, I would have thought. Yeah, so uh, I want to ask a bit about uh, what is one of your early experiences or just overall, I mean, I don't think there's one early experience, so probably just a collection of different experiences, which somehow motivate you to write about um, a lot of these characters' inner world. Because it's a, it's a theme, I would say, that you have to explore one character and their inner world from a very subjective point of view. I don't know if I'm representing it correctly, but... Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's accurate. Um, and the answer to that question is I have no idea. I mean, I've, it's not that I think when you come to sit down to do something, um, you have certain intentions, okay? And let's imagine there was an, an early Alex, you know, from the past um, who wanted to do things. Um, when you sit down to do those things, then the act of doing it dictates what eventually gets done one way or another. So you quickly come to understand the things that you're interested in doing, um, the things that you're capable of doing, 
the things that other people are interested in reading when you have done them. And that kind of takes out of the picture any kind of um, intentional, I'm going to go in and do this because you've, it, it never works that well. You never, you never get to do the thing that you thought you were going to do and you're never quite sure what it was you were going to do anyway. But I think realistically, to a more honest answer to the question, um, thinking about it is that I was always interested in fantasy stuff when I was a kid. So, uh, and fantasizing. Um, and I, you know, it's not like I had a difficult childhood uh, <laughs> compared to a lot of people, but, um, or that I was lonely but I was certainly antisocial. I think I, I preferred to be in reading uh, than out up and down the street kicking a football around, uh, for example. So a lot of the stuff that I was doing was imaginative play um, of one type or another. I used to play with my brother a lot and make up stories for him uh, and storytelling and, and fantasizing of one type or another was always really central to the kind of stuff that I enjoyed. So I think that once you start doing that uh, and you kind of, understand the world through thinking about things imaginatively from reading books from understanding medium films and tv and all those other kind of things um eventually it becomes obvious that you need to look in inwards otherwise you don't get to uh, write your characters properly so i've always been more interested in what makes people tick and i guess psychologically speaking that there may be some kind of unresolved issue with understanding the people around me um and how they work and how the world works and uh, it's very very I mean I can't understand why everybody wouldn't do that so perhaps I'm just overgeneralizing from my own position but um, that would seem to be a, a reasonable way to go into the world is to imagine what it is that you are thinking uh, when you see that person and then you have to try and understand who they are and what they're about and I think that just represents itself it represented itself very clearly in in the first few books that I wrote because they were very, very focused inward on, on particular, particularly um, like aberrant psychologies. And I don't really know why that is. Um, there are lots of glib answers I could give. One of them, I mean, it, it usefully is that my wife was working as a, in a mental health advocate um, during the writing of some of the material. So she was working for MIND, the charity MIND at um, St. Thomas's Hospital in London. Um, and dealing with people who were sectioned under the Mental Health Act, for example. So people who were incapable of leaving by virtue of the fact that their reality didn't gel with the reality that the rest of the world experienced, particularly schizophrenics, who were very, very um, definite that the world that they lived in was true and real, despite the fact that everybody would disagree with them, uh, to such an extent that if you, if you um, refuse to disavow the reality that you were uh, espousing under your schizophrenia, then you weren't allowed to leave the hospital um, ever. So then the question then became philosophically speaking for me as well, how certain is anybody of their reality? Uh, and why is it that we privilege some types of, of realities over others? And why lots of us can march around with very unusual ideas um, and not be um, imprisoned for them uh, in one way or another. And it seemed like an interesting place to, to work at as a novelist. I mean, you can make up things and you can make stories and entertain people. But also there's the kind of impetus that you might want to try and understand. Uh, injustices is too kind of uh, <laughs> vainglorious a term, but things that might have gone wrong in the world. <clears throat> and the kind of things that Emma was looking at were very much things where you thought, oh, this is not fair. It's not fair that this person is... Uh, is um, 
kept imprisoned on the basis of their beliefs, even if they are pathological. And what, how far are we as individuals who aren't imprisoned ever away from that? And if you live in London, um, and even if you work at a university, it becomes pretty obvious that certain parts of the population, certain demographics, certain genders uh, are far more predisposed to being accused of having unacceptable realities uh, that lead them into imprisonment uh, than other people. So it's looking at that kind of, what is it to have a reality that is so aberrant to the general society that's gonna get you imprisoned? So for someone like Schreiber, that was uh, 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century Germany. For someone like Lucia Joyce, it was mid 20th century to late 20th century Europe and Britain. Uh, and increasingly for, for everybody, it's now <laughs> we are in a situation where yeah. you, know, you can find I, yourself at the other end of, of the authorities. Yeah, I find it interesting, especially that... Um, here, where we have a predominantly rationalist, materialistic uh, mm. belief systems, something which is pathologically, let's say, misfiring, according to that view, uh, which we were just you were describing, it mm. makes more sense to acknowledge that uh, that oh yeah, it is of course it's a hardware issue, so that's not yeah. the person's problem. And some of the cultures have actually found a different way around it. I'm, I'm sure you might have heard that they consider these people something of a like a gift they have a gift those they can yeah, talk sure. to the other well, type of- i mean frankly we do that in this country and a lot of those people are called novelists uh, or they'll be called people who um eccentrics uh, and then it, eventually you, you come down to what i think is unfortunately the case is that it tends to be a class issue and often a race issue um it's a form of disciplinary action on the part of the state against people who it would seek to uh, <laughs> oppress. I can't think of a better word for it. Um, and you know, this is why you see a, a much higher rate of schizophrenia in young black men, for example, than you do in any other demographic of, of the population. Whereas the notion, even in English literature, of the, of the wealthy aristocratic eccentric is, is very common. And yet there's no sense that any of these people are gonna be put in <laughs> in prison or in a hospital from which they aren't allowed to be removed. Um, instead, we, we kind of uh, valorize their eccentricity uh, and make a big show of how amusing they all are. Um, so you, I think that there's a, a kind of very uncomfortable antagonism between eccentricity and schizophrenia, which seems to be class-based. Um, so all of those things make it a very fruitful place to write into if you're a writer because you can start looking at those um, intersections and, and work out what that means for the world and what it means you know, in terms of understanding your own reality. And particularly in times like this where everything's in flux, we have to now, you know, the idea that somehow uh, the market it was the thing that was required in order to make sure everything worked, it's now being shown to be pretty much useless. The market is not market for PPE, for example, is not a useful um, instrument for us in solving the coronavirus crisis, for example. And we're soon going to find out that all of those things that were unassailable realities like capitalism and markets and um, laissez-faire government of one type or another is not going to help us through these things. Um, and then we're going to have to work out, well, what are the things that are real? And suddenly some of those things that, you've, that people have been punished for believing 
Um, like for example, the idea, I mean, you can take your pick, the idea that all uh, things have a soul, for example, if you want to take some kind of animist view, which is a kind of considered in, you know, in straight rationalist materialist culture to be a nonsense, um, might be a very useful set of ideas if we're going to have to start looking at, you know, how we're going to deal with the world in a, in a post-pandemic crisis, um, you know, post-pandemic pre-ecological crisis. Um, so it, I think that negotiation between sense and nonsense and real and unreal and pathological and healthy, all of those things are going to be up for grabs. And you know, I think they always were, but yeah. we just we get ossified in particular materialist, rationalist ways of thinking. Uh, until they seem as if they must be true. Uh, and then when we find out that they don't help us, then you have to start thinking of other things that might be true. I'm like extremely interested in this kind of scientific uh, ground where people slowly are changing the beliefs. So mm. some of the astrophysicists, some of the biologists who are really well respected now are criticizing mm. the some of the scientific models which somehow deteriorated into a very fixated states. And of yeah. course, as, as any system, it slowly starts to become a bit tyrannical and a bit fixated yeah. on, on their but own. Also, I mean, I, I think people learn to negotiate the, the, the science often and the rational frameworks to their own ends. I mean, in this exactly the same way that eugenics um, tried to do in the, in the 20th century, this sense that you could take um, evolution, which seems a reasonable set of, of beliefs, and then apply them in ways in which they're not useful right? or not real because they failed to understand very basic things. And I think it's possible for pseudoscientific, parascientific uh, nonsense and to, to very, be very, very close and perhaps inseparable to the layman in terms of the way that it's articulated um, as you go through, as, as things start to become kind of um, put into the public consciousness so things like rationality, things like materialism, things that have a very particular worldview tend to get debased over time um, to the point in which essentially they're being used pseudoscientifically for people's political gains. And you know, to get back to the writing, that's largely what the first three books are about. And this next one is about how you use power. So it's, it's rather than taking those... those um, uh, kind of conditional things like what what is a reality what is um what is what is it to be on the wrong side of of reality then you can move to what is it to use power and i think this is where you've where regardless of of what real your um you want to occupy or what real you want to believe in or what real you can justify what you do with that particularly if you're in power is 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 the problem and i think we've worked on the assumption that if you're in power then you're you get to do what you like with it uh, because you're in power and consequently you've no one should be able to question you because you're on the right side of reality uh, and you must be because you have power you've won reality reality is for you uh, and you've demonstrated your innate goodness by being successful within it and i think very quickly it it's becomes obvious that that's not a helpful way of, of being in the world um, particularly when you see someone like you know, Jeff Bezos, for example, making two billion pounds a week uh, and not then thinking, well, why don't I make this take this two billion pounds a week and use it to do something useful with? <laughs> There's nothing stopping Jeff Bezos 
being the savior and messiah of all humanity <laughs> and fixing the problems with his enormous wealth. I mean, why aren't they doing that? Where are these billionaires fixing this? I don't see anybody doing it. <laughs> I, I think the, this might be one of the reasons why you find a lot of people who think that their reality, what they believe in and what is helpful to them is the reality. So anything else. So if mm. they would can sometimes, I, I think it's just a, it's just popped in my mind. Maybe that's why the subtlety of classifying some of the fictions, which would start to question those areas, which would start yeah, to sure. bring back that otherness. Uh, they would say, oh yeah, that's escapism. Yeah. It, it somehow, I just found it, even when I was a young kid, I found it really uh, debilitating that uh, I found that this book has allowed me and uh, uh, make me able to explore who I am and my reality, my, my relationship to the whole and made it better. But why would you say that this is just escapism? But yeah. I, can, I can see the tie and the suit, unfortunately. Ursula Le Guin is good on this. If you ever, she did a good speech when she won the National Writers Award of America and hmm. looking at what it meant to be a realist and what it meant to write fantasy and science fiction. And those things are, have been marginalized as childish and fantastic and escapist and all those other things. Whereas realism, uh, particularly in English literature, has, has been where it's at. You've got to be, you've got to understand the real, what's the real world. And, and often the real world that realism deals with is a very privileged subset of what the world is. And it's not, doesn't tend to be about people with unusual views. It tends to be about, frankly, Oxford and Cambridge graduates and what a difficult time they have before they move into the banking sector. But that's the, the literature of that part of society is very well handled by realism. Uh, or you have like the kind of direct opposite, which is people who are living on the streets. Um, and those, those two things are kind of um, are put cheek by jowl and, and occasionally uh, there's a fad for one or the other. But what, as you, I think you rightly point out, speculative work that looks in, in both science fiction and fantasy that looks at cultures, looks at technology and tries to make some kind of uh, interesting thing to say about it um, has been and still is relegated to the kind of, uh, you know, the sordid back of the bookshop where and it's, it's considered to be not something that a serious person would do um and i think that's a that's ridiculous and i think it's politically dangerous i think for one thing it's it's a whole field of of literary practice that people who don't get to speak like to read for one thing <laughs> and secondly it doesn't fall into that that foolish error of imagining that only upper middle class people who were oxford and cambridge educated are allowed to have control of, re of reality. And we're seeing that very obviously now when you know you put a, uh, a bunch of Eastern educated PPE studying uh, career politicians in control of the country and they literally don't know what to do. They can't get a situation where they could get a factory up and running to produce medical equipment, which is, which is a damning condemnation of anyone's uh, ability to arrange something. I mean, it is not difficult, <laughs> should not be difficult to, with the resources of an entire state to mass produce masks. That's not the end of the world for anybody's ability to arrange something. I mean, you know, and the fact that we're, look, we're, we're left with people who are kind of shrugging and looking vague and, and don't blame me, uh, it's a difficult situation. That's not 
you shouldn't be in a situation where those people have control of the real. You might have thought a lot about maybe relationship with our trauma and then um, mm-hmm. trying to t- trauma and writing creativity or just in, in, in general. And, and when we were talking about um, belittlings, let's say, you know, people's attempt to understand mm. what is the nature of our relationship to this thing we are immersed mm-hmm. in part of rather than looking at it as, as a zoo, let's say. That's mm. what we feel most of the time. We just feel like, oh yeah, this all reality is like a zoo yeah. and we are somehow separated. But mm. probably, you like, is it some sort of a collective trauma? Not collective in a way that it's somehow linked of each of everyone, but we just, we are social beings and we do connect with each other through language. So uh, Yeah, sure. But I think that that's... I think that's the thing that you have to remember first. I mean, I think this is the, if that was something that colored everything that happened, I think this is what I'm trying to get at with the, with the work, with the writing, is that regardless of all of that, regardless of what metaphors you use to describe reality, regardless of whether you might feel that one person is right and one person is wrong, uh, regardless of the way that um, ideology affects things, the way that beliefs of one type or another affect things, or, uh, philosophical and intellectual frameworks there is an essential obligation to everybody else around you who is in this with you that you treat them with dignity and respect first right and not as a kind of byproduct of the market i mean not or a byproduct of any particular way of being in the world okay i am good to you because my god says to be good to you or i am good to you because it's good for me as an employer to have good employees. So I will allow you to have sick pay and annual leave because that means you work harder for me, or I will make sure you get good wages because that allows you to buy my product. So I will be good to you for that reason. I think the first thing that we should be thinking because we're precisely because we're in that situation, which we've all got variable reels in a reality that is arguable and that we all rely on each other, then the first point of call is, okay, so what, am I, what ethical obligations do I have in the first instance to the, to, the, to the culture and the world that I find myself in? And not what do I think is right? And then that hopefully that whatever I think is right will work out right in the end. I think you, you should never be in a position to, to one, be so certain about whatever it is that you think you know, that you feel you get to act in an unethical way to people. And nor should you put that as the first condition. I must know the world as it is and that the world as it is should be sufficient for me to act ethically. Instead, you should act ethically first and then worry about what the world is. Because it may well be that there isn't an is that the world is. <laughs> it yeah. may be that there are multiple is's that the world is and yeah. none of those are pin downable. Yeah. So best yeah. to act act ethically in the first instance. And and I think that's what the books are essentially trying to say is that no one, no matter how um, certain and definite they are about what they believe to be true, should use that as a basis for acting unethically, even if their ethical system seems then to allow for that. Like for example, the idea that you would uh, deny your staff sick leave because you know that that means that you would take a hit financially at your um, goods warehousing factory. Like you should, of course you should give people sick leave. Of course you should, because they're human beings. And if they're ill, you shouldn't force them to work. Um, That is your first question.
you have come to the end of the first part of our conversation. There is another part which we also have made available on the website. So if you are interested, please go check that out. In which I've asked Alex about humans' ability to escape the present moment and how that impacts our culture. So I've also asked Alex about what is his creative writing process and what is his relationship with Muse or Flow State. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation.